Hello, and welcome to Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Phoebe Keller, the head of AEI's media department, and I'm here with AEI President Robert Doerr, and we'll be your new Banter co-hosts. Each week, we'll take you inside our think tank for conversations with leading policymakers and thinkers about today's pressing policy issues. Thanks for tuning in. Joining us on Banter today is Angela Rashidi, who is the Rowe Scholar in Poverty Studies here at AEI, where she studies poverty and the effects of the federal safety net program on low-income Americans. Before joining AEI, Dr. Rashidi spent almost a decade researching benefit programs for low-income populations in New York City. She served as deputy commissioner in New York City's Department of Social Services. Dr. Rashidi is also affiliated with the Institute for Research on Poverty and the Economic Self-Sufficiency Policy Research Institute at the University of California, Irvine. Thanks for joining the podcast, Angela. Thanks, Phoebe and Robert. It's great to be with you. So, Angela, you and I work in this space and have worked together for parts of our careers. One of the things that I think distinguishes you from others is that where some people are always talking about ways to expand the transfer payments and safety net of government, your principal focus has been on a lot of your work on employment and work. Why is work better? Why do you focus so much on work? That is a very interesting question. And and it's actually one I've thought a lot about because I do feel that in this space, my perspective is kind of unique. And sometimes I feel like I'm one of the few that is constantly talking about employment. And so I think that largely stems from my years working at the Department of Social Services in New York City and just seeing what participating in that system really meant for families. And you could really see how most families who were coming to our agency to seek assistance, I mean, they obviously were in in a difficult position and they didn't necessarily want to be asking the government for help. They wanted to be out working, providing for their own families, setting that example for their children and really working towards getting a better life. And so it really dawned on me and kind of early in my career in those years that government assistance and, and government always coming to the rescue really wasn't the best approach for these families and it wasn't really what they wanted. And so it really became clear that employment not only offered them a better future, but it was what they really wanted and that our systems should really be designed around giving people that opportunity to gain that employment and, like I said, make a better future for their families. And when it comes to poverty status, what does work do? What does work lead to if individuals in single parent families, if mothers work, what's likely to happen? Sure. I mean, really in the kind of system we have set up in this country and really, I mean, countries across the globe, work is the primary way to escape poverty. It's the primary source of income for working age families. And even Social Security largely comes from people who were previously working. So when you think of it that way, it's rather obvious that if you're going to reduce poverty, you have to increase employment levels among families. And when we look at poverty data, that's largely what we see. When you look at the work rates among people in poverty, they are relatively low compared to people who are not in poverty. And there's other reasons for that in terms of education level, age, things like that. But when you just look at the correlation between employment, especially full-time employment and poverty, there's a very strong correlation and very low poverty rates among people who work full-time full year. So if you work, you aren't likely to be poor. That's a fact. But even if right. you are very, working, very unlikely. very unlikely. I mean, the numbers are two or three percent. It's, it's tiny. Exactly. 
And so why wouldn't we encourage people to get into work to avoid poverty? So that's what we do. That's what you've done. That's what your work has led you to think is the right approach. But even if you work and you're in certain circumstances, the government still can help you even more and does, doesn't it? It does. I mean, we often describe the safety net in the United States as a work-based safety net. And as you know, Robert, I mean, that has evolved over time. But really, since the late 1990s, it's been this approach that if you work, the government will provide additional benefits that largely raises your family out of poverty. And it accomplishes that through things like the earned income tax credit, which only goes to families who are working and can be as much as at certain income levels, as much as six, $7,000 a year, depending on how many children you have. And so when you add that on top of earnings and then additional support through food assistance or housing assistance and Medicaid, which is also a very large benefit, when you start to add all of that together with a family's earnings, a family can really escape poverty and can get on a better path. But when you take that, when, when there's no earnings in the household, when there's no employment in the household, that's when you have families that really struggle because they not only don't have the earnings, they don't have that subsidy through the earned income tax credit, and very few families can survive on SNAP alone or Medicaid and SNAP alone. And so it really, really shows the importance of employment from a financial perspective. But the other thing I always like to talk about is the benefits of employment aren't just financial. As both of you know as well, there's dignity that comes from work. There's social networks that are provided. There's just so many benefits, non-financial benefits to employment that giving low-income families the opportunity for those non-financial benefits is almost as important as the financial benefits. So you're pro-work, you're strong on work, and you've talked about families, you've talked about families with children. Tell us about your view of the role of single parenthood in leading to people and families and children being in poverty. Well, we know from the data that poverty rates are very much elevated for single parent families. And some of that is just mechanical. I mean, when you have a household that only has one earner, the likelihood of having lower income is just higher. So that's mechanical. And then we also know that the demographics of people who are generally in or who form a single parent household tend to then have lower education levels, smaller social networks. So it's kind of this combination of factors that contribute to lower employment rates and just more difficulties working. And so we know that though that single parent families are the most vulnerable families when it comes to a poverty perspective. So the solution then is not only to increase employment, but try to increase income in the family through adding additional adults, whether that's marriage, cohabitating relationships, but really having two parents in a household that both have some earning potential or can take on some of the caretaking responsibilities that are necessary to allow the second person to have some earning capacity. So really family structure obviously plays an extremely important role in explaining poverty. And when you combine that with employment and all the other factors that contribute to employment, it really does paint this picture of the importance of having two parents in a household when there's children involved and employment. So Phoebe and I were discussing before you came on that you are a mother of four. And so it's possible that you might have a soft spot for people that say a mother with one or two children 
who maybe doesn't have a husband in the household, why should we ask them to go to work? Why don't we just give them all the benefits they need to stay at home and support their children? How do you react to that? I do hear oftentimes people make that argument. And I actually think about that in exactly the opposite way, that if you are expecting a mother to stay home in her prime working years to take care of the children, only take care of the children, and rely on the government to support them, what does that mean for that family in the long run? What it means is they likely are going to be poor or low low income during those times, and we know how critical income is for child development. But then what does that mean for that family once that government assistance goes away, so if those children age out? It's just, to me, not a good lifestyle or there's not good prospects for that family in the long term. And it gets back to what I said about the the non-financial benefits of work as well. I mean, we just have learned so much about those non-financial benefits in terms of relationships, in terms of the mental health aspects of working and what positive benefits that can have for people. So I actually, when I hear arguments like that, I think, no, that's the wrong approach. We actually should be figuring out a way to maximize employment for that single mom, while also giving her, though, the flexibility and the opportunities to be a good caretaker for her children, but combine that with employment, because that's the way the family will be better off in the long run. And when New York City social services agencies under Michael Bloomberg and Mayor Giuliani before him did take this pretty strong stance on, we're no longer going to support single parents at home with sufficient benefits so they can stay out of work. We're going to push them into work, reward them if they go to work, but we're going to really insist on it. Did that lead to negative consequences for the children in their upbringing over and above the ones that would occur in a single parent family anyway, or in low-income families? I mean, was there an uptick in foster care placements or poor performance in schools? Did the push to work reduce the quality of the parenting for those children? I mean, that's an interesting question. So, I mean, we did not see the kind of negative outcomes that I think a lot of critics of welfare reform in the late 90s suggested might happen. Like you mentioned, we didn't see these huge increases in child welfare. You didn't see huge increases of children going hungry and all of those really terrible things that people kind of warned might happen. So we didn't see that. The kind of more narrow question about, well, what did welfare reform and this increase in employment do for the quality of parenting, for example, the the parent-child relationship? I mean, it's obviously a difficult thing to study, but in general, some of the studies that came out largely showed that younger children tended to be better off when their single parent went to work, and that largely came from the fact that there was just more income in the household. Where some of the research is a little bit mixed, it was about the adolescents. Some of that research, and again, not that there were these very large spikes in really terrible outcomes like child welfare, but there were a few studies that showed there, there might have been some behavioral issues or things that on average happened among adolescents. And some of the researchers largely attributed that to maybe just the instability or the, the kind of changing nature of families in terms of working. And were those adolescents the one that had to take on some of the caretaking responsibilities when the parents went to work? And I think that those are important findings for all of us to acknowledge that some of that can happen. And I think it points to some work at the time, at least, that social service agencies needed to do to make sure that families were supported in a holistic way. 
but in no way, I think, undermined the underlying message that work was important for these families and they really were better off in the long run with employment. So you work in a space that has a very liberal leftward slant, you know, whether that's in Mm. academia and research. I'm curious to hear just a little bit more of your experience about how that's been to go against the grain on a lot of these themes. How has that been? That's a very interesting, and it's very true. I mean, oftentimes I am a single, singular voice on some of these issues. And I have to admit, it can be difficult at times. You start to question if some of your interpretation of research that's out there or data that's out there is somehow wrong because so many other people are coming to different conclusions. But over time, what I've realized, and and you start to realize this when you talk to other people as well, is that it's not just about interpreting data, it's about what questions are being asked and the types of leaps that people take in advocating for certain policies without a whole lot of information to back it up. And I'll just talk about one that's very recent. It has to do with SNAP. So SNAP is the country's main food assistance program, as both of you know. And there's been this large push recently to increase the benefit level, so to increase the amount of money that's going into an eligible families into their household. And it's largely based on this idea that, oh, we've seen food insecurity increase double, triple since the pandemic, which there's some questions about that. But it's interesting to me that most families who have expressed food insecurity issues aren't even receiving SNAP. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's kind of like it's, it's like the left jumping to kind of a long-held belief that SNAP benefits are too low and, and pushing and advocating for an increase in those benefits and a change to that policy that really isn't supported by the data that we're seeing. And so I find myself trying to push back on that. And like you said, it's it's not always easy, but I think it's a really crucial thing that there are other voices out there and that there are people who are willing to challenge kind of what seemingly is a consensus view, but actually doesn't have a whole lot of support behind it. So one of the things that I always think is the divide, Phoebe, is that there are people who just, no matter what the question is, want to spend more, that the measure of success is increased government transfers as a percentage of GDP or as a total dollar amount or compared to the previous year. Any way they can do it, they just want more, regardless of its effectiveness on families' situation. Mm -hmm. And of course, the negative consequence of more without a concern about work incentives is that you could spend more and lead to people working less. Right. And so, and I'm sure that's one of the things that's on Angela's mind is the work incentives of various government programs. But What I wanted to ask you, Angela, was just looking at the the gross expenditure. Do you think that we spend enough? Or maybe there are a couple of places you'd spend more. But overall, how do you think we're doing in the sort of financial commitment in the United States to low-income families? I do think we spend a great deal of money on programs for low-income families. And as you know, it's increased tremendously in the past 30 years or so just grown exponentially. So we do, I mean, we spend a lot of money. I mean, a lot of people throw around numbers, but I mean, it's in the hundreds of billions of dollars each year. And so when you think of that, yes, it's a lot of money, but I think a lot of the programs that are supported by that large pot of money aren't necessarily effective. I think there's a lot of better ways we could be spending that money. And and for me, it does come back to employment. If we could be using that money to support people better in their own path towards employment and really supporting them on that path, 
then I think people might be more comfortable spending that large amount of money. But when we do have this view that we're spending this money, and, but it's also disincentivizing people from working or creating these benefit cliffs where people, I mean, low-income people are rational. They know that if I work more, I'm going to lose that benefit. So why would I work more? Like when we set up a system like that, then it doesn't make as much sense to me to be spending that much money. But we certainly in this country spend a lot of money on low-income families. I just wish it was spent a little bit better. Angela, 2019 was kind of an interesting year for those of us like you who work in this world. It was a milestone year. Tell us what it was first and then tell us why you think it occurred and, and whether you think we can get back to that kind of performance in future years. Sure. Well, it was a unique year because we had the lowest poverty rate on record, really. I mean, poverty measurement, as you know, has a long history of controversy. But when you measure poverty really in what I would argue is the most appropriate way, meaning you include all the resources in a household, including benefits that they receive from the government, we see this very large decline in poverty, particularly over the past 20 to 30 years. And by 2019, with those government benefits combined with a very strong economy. Like I said, we had the lowest poverty rates on record. And it was really across the board. I mean, we saw the lowest poverty rates among African-American children. We saw the lowest poverty rates among Hispanic children. We saw the gap between white and African-American children, for example, narrow to one of the lowest gaps, again, on record. So really a lot of good things to point to in 2019. The only pause I have is that much of that success came from just government transfer programs. And so, again, the idea of these government transfer programs actually are reducing employment and just being a kind of supplanting employment instead of supplementing it, that's a cause for concern. But I think, you know, on balance, um, when you look at 2019, really a success story in terms of the poverty alleviation efforts in this country. So the strong economy left to a lot of people working, but I think what you just said was that it could have been even better if even more people worked who were not working because of the benefits that they were receiving, allowing them to stay out of the workforce. Is that what you mean when you say it could have still been better? It could have. I mean, we still have a chunk of people who are not in the labor force. Our labor force participation rates are still not as high as they were 20, 30 years ago, especially for men. So, I mean, it's not a completely rosy picture. We still have some issues. And so if we could structure the safety net even better, that you are really encouraging people to enter the labor force and to be working, and I'm particularly talking about people with health issues, for example, that's just a population that has very low labor force participation and our benefit system set up for them very much discourages any kind of employment. And that's not going away. So if we were able to fix that, you would see these poverty rates go even lower. Say, just on that, the extent to which the health care benefits discourage or don't pay any attention to employment, first thought to that will be, well, that's because someone's got a health issue that doesn't allow them to work. But isn't it true that actually people do work with health issues and often by working, they help their income and their health issues? Yes, exactly. I mean, there's quite a bit of literature on the relationship between work and health. And there certainly are people who have disabilities that prevent them from working. But we kind of have this very bifurcated system. You have a, an advocacy, you have disability advocates who their entire 
purpose is to try to increase employment and employment opportunities for people with disabilities because they recognize the benefit of employment for them. So that's all the ADA, the workplace accommodations, all of that for people with disabilities. But then in our welfare system, it's kind of the complete opposite. It's, oh, if you have a health condition, if you have a disability, oh, we don't want you to work. We want to pay you not to work. We want to keep you home. And I think that there's this real disconnect between these two systems. And we should be focusing more on, again, those non-financial benefits to work and really creating opportunities for low-income families who have health issues or disabilities to get back into the labor force. And I think that that's one area that our safety net really does a disservice to people who are trying to get help from it. So, Angela, you've been around. You sound young and vibrant with your four kids out there in Wisconsin, and you're as energetic as ever. But you have been around this business a long time, and you've observed changing administrations, both at the state and city and federal level. We're going to have a new administration with Vice President Biden becoming president on January 20th. What do you think about this new regime in the executive branch in Washington that you're most worried about? you think will come out of their approach that you think will be harmful, potentially harmful to the efforts to help low-income families work and escape poverty? Yeah, I do have some concerns and some pretty major concerns that employment will be de-emphasized. We have felt this push over the last even four years for bigger government, bigger programs, and really kind of trying, scholars trying to make the case for why programs need to be expanded my concern is that that's going to gain even more traction in a new administration. And why I think that is really harmful is because, I mean, you just, again, think back to 2019 and how families were doing, and we had the lowest poverty rates, and it was because people were working, and we're in a completely different employment situation now. That's true, but things eventually will get better. And so if you have this system that has allowed employment to be de-emphasized, the last people who are going to benefit from a recovering economy are the lowest income people. They're the people who are participating in SNAP. They're the people who are participating in these other expanded safety net programs who will have those work and disincentives. And they're going to miss out on that recovery. And five, how many ever years from now we get back to where we were in 2019, my fear is those families are going to have missed out on that prosperity. And that does concern me. Are you concerned that Some of the assistance programs that have been introduced or experimented with during COVID will kind of continue to encourage those bigger government programs and continue to de-emphasize work. And how could we, whenever the pandemic ends, as you said, how can we kind of readjust after that? That's another good question. I think a lot of people are asking that question because, I mean, as we know, there was just this huge expansion in response to the pandemic in March. And I mean, unemployment compensation was one thing, and and it seems like, I mean, part of that was rolled back already. We'll have to see what happens with kind of the long-term unemployed and, and how long they can get unemployment insurance. But more in my space, I mean, SNAP, for example, is just, I don't think even people realize how much it was actually expanded, but the expenditures doubled, almost doubled from about $4 billion a month to about $7 billion a month. And it was because a household who prior to the pandemic had not received a maximum benefit, now can receive the maximum benefit, whether they have other income in the household or not. So one of my concerns is that 
the necessary but very large expansion to programs, especially like SNAP, will start to be normalized and start to be kind of understood as, well, this is the way that it needs to be. That in the long run will result in a more generous program that, again, will introduce or make worse employment disincentives that we already know exist in that program. So I feel like with a new administration coming in, there might be some efforts to extend some of those provisions longer than they really need to be. You know, we're in this discussion, Phoebe, that Angela and I have both been involved in over many years. It's usually, if you look at it for political terms, it's usually people who see things as we are against people on the left who want to just expand government benefits and don't want to say to anybody seeking assistance that they need to do anything in terms of going to work. And so we're used to that discussion. But of late, and Angela, I noticed that you engaged in a little Twitter back and forth earlier today, or maybe it was yesterday. We've been Mm. getting some countervailing pressure from the right, our friends on the right. And Mm. there's a group of conservatives who are very into family more than anything else and increasing birth rates so that more families have as many children as Angela and I have had, (laughs) not together, but separately. (laughs) And we have had four for our listeners. Angela is a member of the Four Children Club, and I am too. And that's their obsession. Birth rates are falling, struggling families. And so they are pushing. These are people on the right, friends of ours, a much bigger expansion of what's called the refundable child tax credit. They would give it to everybody, but that would include people at the bottom who already receive refundable tax credits to support the raising of their children while they work. And Angela, you tell us about that. How does it feel to be attacked by conservatives for being insufficiently supportive of an expanded child tax credit? Yeah, I feel like I don't have a lot of friends on either side (laughs) oftentimes because it is true. I mean, there there is this push, kind of the pronatal kind of push for child tax credit. And we saw a proposal come out. I think it was from Senator Romney earlier last year. But yes, expanding the child tax credit. And when those discussions happen, you really don't hear a whole lot about the employment disincentive. And part of the reason that we don't hear about it is because a lot of conservatives and liberals don't believe that those effects are very strong. And there's not a whole lot of concrete evidence to suggest either way. But Robert, as you mentioned, I've been around a long time. I have. I remember in those early 2000s when welfare reform just went into place and you shifted from a system, which we called AFDC, from a system where single mothers with children got a check from the government and there were no expectations put on them in terms of work and what that meant for those families. The work rates were extremely low. Obviously, they would be low. And those families were still in poverty. It was just they didn't have really a path to get out because they weren't working. And I think in some ways that was a traumatizing time in our history because it just was such a misguided policy. And so I feel like sometimes this discussion about having a refundable tax credit like that, and to be clear, refundable just means that people aren't paying income taxes into the system. So they're actually, it's really just a transfer payment from the government. And to me, it's eerily similar to those early kind of AFDC payments. And I'm just concerned that we would start down a path towards that system where, again, undermines uh, the importance of employment really kind of harms these families more than they help them. Eerily similar. Uh, so I have it's the same thing. It's just done by the federal government instead of the state. 
and it will have the absolute same effect. If you receive a dependency creating benefit from the government, which has no work requirement attached to it, you won't work and it won't be good for yourself or your family. And I actually think your income will drop a little too, but you'll be able to do that because you've been told you don't have to. Yeah. So then some of the pushback I get when I make that argument is people will say, oh, well, we're just going to make that proportional to what the taxes that you pay. So for example, you pay about 15% in payroll taxes, right? When you count the employer share and the employee share. So, okay, well, we're only going to give people then 15% of their earnings. But what that means then is you're really, it's very much a regressive kind of system then. So you're not actually then helping low-income families because 15% of 20,000, right, is a very small benefit for them when then you're giving middle-class families $5,000 per child. So then that's my concern is then what really are we trying to accomplish with this? And if it's just another middle-income kind of benefit, I think we just really need to think through what, what our priorities are and who should receive the priority. Well, what's going on there, Angela, is that some people want to give that middle-class benefit. They want to return more dollars or make so that the effective federal taxation for a middle-class working family is zero or even negative because they're struggling and they're lower middle class. And that's what they really want to do. And there's maybe an argument for that, but they can't do it and not also give because the left will never let them a similar benefit to another group of families who are likely to be harmed by that benefit by because it would discourage them from going to work. It's a little bit of a fairness game and And they're willing to sacrifice poor families in order to get this benefit for middle-class families. I think it's unfortunate. Yeah, I agree. Hello, I'm Christopher Scalia, Director of Academic Programs at AEI. And I'd like to tell you about AEI's Summer Honors Program. The Summer Honors Program is an immersive, week-long learning experience in which exceptional undergraduates of all political stripes study policy with AEI scholars enjoy wide-ranging expert panel discussions, and learn about policy career opportunities. Additionally, a small cohort of students will be accepted to a more intensive, month-long opportunity. This year, we're offering 16 courses that explore foreign and defense policy, economics, the law, education, healthcare, and more. Our instructors include some of AEI's most renowned scholars, as well as distinguished college professors. Did I mention that the program is fully funded? We cover travel costs, provide lodging and meals, and offer a stipend. So if you're an undergraduate who's eager to study policy with renowned experts and to engage in substantive conversations with other students, or if you know someone who fits that bill, I encourage you to learn more about this opportunity and take a look at our full list of courses and instructors by visiting our website. Just Google AEI Summer Honors Program. But don't delay. The early decision deadline is January 4th, and the final deadline for applications is March 1st. Well, this has been a good discussion. Phoebe, yeah. do you have anything further to ask? No, I'm or, all good. You've been hanging around with the poverty scholars. I here. know. <laughs> About to become a poverty scholar. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Angela, thank you very much, and I hope you're well, and, and thanks for all that you do. Thank you. Well, yeah, thanks for the conversation. It was great. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Please remember to subscribe and rate the podcast. Feel free to send us any feedback or suggestions at banter at AEI.org.